because I knew up to that point, I knew all this stuff about God, but I was lacking in terms of how much I really knew God in my personhood, in my lived experience. And so that's why there was such a crisis in the face of suffering, because I was, um, what I knew in my head wasn't enough to help me hold and navigate uh, some of the most difficult experiences of a, of a human of a human life. Hi there, friends. This is episode 68 of the Spirituality for Ordinary People podcast. My name is Matt Bruff. I'm an author and a pastor and your host. And today I have an interview with Felina Hewerts. And it's a really incredible conversation. Felina is an author and a speaker. Um, She has a book, a new book out called Mindful Silence, The Heart of Christian Contemplation. But a lot of what we talk about in this podcast is actually the connection between contemplative spirituality and uh, social action. Um, Felina's background was really in working in some of the poorest places in the world to try to bring God's light and also to try to support and strengthen the people of God in those places. Um, And she talks a lot and is really candid in this conversation about the crisis of faith after seeing so much suffering firsthand and how that actually led her towards contemplative spirituality as a way of really... Um, having a deeper connection to God, one that was getting more out of your head and intellectual beliefs and more truly into the heart of where God's heart is. Um, That might have been leaning a little more heavily on Felina's first book called Pilgrimage of a Soul, uh, Contemplative Spirituality for the Act of Life. But this conversation, I mean, just the way that it went, I know you're going to love this one and maybe be challenged by it. Uh, It gives you tons to think about. Uh, And at the very end, we do kind of talk about uh, her latest book, which is really more like a book that can help you enter into certain uh, contemplative spiritual practices like Lectio Divina, breath prayer, centering prayer, uh, walking labyrinths and things like that. So we do talk about that toward the end of the interview. But a lot of the interview is just trying to talk through um, the depth of the contemplative tradition why it's important for more Christians to know more about the contemplative tradition. I I know I personally found it challenging as a pastor. Uh, We don't talk about contemplative practices that much in our congregation even. And um, even though I have this podcast and been doing this for a while, you'd think that I would talk about it more. But um, this conversation with Felina really challenged me to think through how how do I talk about that in my own life? How do I practice my own spirituality? And I think it might do the same for you. So I'd, I'd really recommend taking a look at uh, Felina's stuff, her website and uh, and her books uh, after you've listened to this interview, of course. So I know you're going to love this one. Uh, as always, if you like what you are hearing on this podcast, uh, please feel free to go and leave a review for it on iTunes because that helps other people find it um, or feel free to simply just recommend it to friends um, who you think might benefit by what's being discussed here. Um, So for now, uh, you can just sit and enjoy this interview with Felina Hewerts. 
She spent her life in social justice work among the world's poor. A member of the New Friar movement for nearly 20 years, she and her husband Chris served with Word Made Flesh in more than 70 countries, building community among victims of human trafficking, survivors of HIV and AIDS, abandoned children and child soldiers and war brides. Um, And then you're an author, spiritual director, yoga instructor, public speaker, retreat guide, uh, all these things. Um, Mm -hmm. And then uh, you and your husband, I know, are the founders of the Gravity Center as well. Um, So if we can, we're going to talk about all of that. (laughs) Um, But you also have a new book out. So we need to mention that and kind of jump into some of that stuff as well. So your new book is called Mindful Silence, The Heart of Christian Contemplation. Um, so, and, and that's really why I was hoping to get you on the podcast because we're kind of talking about Christian spirituality and spirituality for ordinary people. Um, so I'd love to just start, I know that's a whole bunch of stuff in your bio, but I want to just start with what, what do you think is Christian contemplation or contemplative spirituality? However, we want to talk about it. Mm. Um, how do you understand what that is? Mm. Yeah, so contemplative spirituality, as I have come to understand it and and live it, centers around uh, postures of solitude, silence, and stillness. So interior um, solitude, silence, and stillness. But to to get any degree of an, of interior quiet, um, we really need practices to help us with that. So external practices of solitude, silence, and stillness. That now that is not to say that there aren't other means of of coming into contemplation but um traditionally through the 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 western um christian church as has been kind of um that we've inherited from europe really uh centers around you know these these various kinds of practices um that that evolve into being able to really listen and discern and live into our truest self or the divine nature as Peter calls it, I think in the new Testament scriptures. Okay, cool. Um, We're going to get into like what that a little more deeply into that, but I also want to ask you what led you toward uh, contemplative spirituality, or has this just been something that's always been part of who you are or did it was there a journey that kind of got you more and more into that? Yeah. Yeah. You know, there's, totally a story and a pivotal turning point, which is true for most of us that kind of stumble into the contemplative tradition. Um, for me, it, I, I grew up in the church. My father was a pastor and uh, I've always taken my faith really seriously. I, I took a personal relationship with God seriously. Um, always pretty devoted to prayer. I was voted most likely to become a nun in high school. Uh, you know how they do that when you graduate? Like, <laughs> that's interesting. That could mean right. several things. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, but all of that to say, you know, I, I, I grew up eating, breathing, sleeping Christianity. And uh, after graduating college, I joined this international mission uh, serving among the most vulnerable of the world's poor. So we got our start working with Mother Teresa and the Missionaries of Charity in India and, uh, and then started a, a home for children with HIV and AIDS. Um, this was really at the, at the summit of the AIDS crisis in the early 90s. And 
children born with the disease or, or the, the positive test were um, really feared and, and people didn't understand the disease or how it was contracted. And so these children would be abandoned. So we started a home for them. And uh, along the way, my husband and I um, actually early on were asked by our U.S. board to oversee the international mission that was really just a, a few of us working in India, like a number of Indian staff and the children that we were caring for there, and just a few um, U.S. folks. And then within eight years, the organization just blossomed and... Um, we ended up working with about 300 staff in 13 cities in the majority world. And so um, our organization was serving in all parts of South and Southeast Asia, Eastern Europe, West Africa, and South America. Hmm. And, uh, and so my husband and I had responsibilities for travel and visiting these communities and offering support and oversight and some training. And, uh, and so it was a pretty intense life. And I, you know, literally saw the world and um, saw human suffering firsthand, um, you know, from children who were abandoned with, um, with terminal illness to children living on the streets, um, survivors of trafficking, labor trafficking, sex trafficking, and um, all kinds of really desperate human um, situations. And then let's see, I guess it was about eight years in that I visited Freetown, Sierra Leone at the peak of the war over Blood Diamonds. Some of your listeners may have seen the American film um, Blood Diamonds. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's pretty accurate to what was happening there. And we showed up in Freetown, the capital city. Uh, The war was still happening uh, outside of the city, but the city had been um, liberated and the UN peacekeeping troops were there and they were setting up Uh, refugee camps for displaced people who were literally pouring into the city. And, um, you know, it's a, it's a really long story that is, um, in my book in in the first chapter. So people um, who may be interested in knowing more of the details will, will find it there, but long story short, I was confronted with, um, the unresolvable reality of human suffering and in the face of um, human brutality in a way that I had not seen, uh, child soldiers committing unspeakable crimes against young girls who were conscripted into the war as what they call war brides, meaning that they were subjected to domestic and sexual slavery. So even though I was well acquainted with poverty and suffering, um, this took it to a whole new level in terms of um, victims and victimizers and um, and brutality, like what, what humanity is capable of. And, um, you know, these young boys had been drugged and, um, unspeakable things were, were perpetrated against them and their family. Um, it was a horrible, horrible mess. And as I came back from that experience, I had, I had spent intimate time with, um, both the young girls and the young boys, and they would re many of them would, um, just share their story, you know, completely traumatized part of their healing was sharing their story and also hoping that um, by sharing their story, they might receive help because they'd lost everything. I came back from that trip and, um, and was confronted with a, a crisis of faith. So 
Um, at this point in my life, I was asking huge, big questions about God and the faith and what does it all really mean and what, how much does it matter? And um, if God is good, you know, these kinds of questions, then how does God explain this, you know? And um, I found myself really doubting God and questioning God's goodness. And this was devastating for me because as you, you know, as I just shared, I, I had taken my faith very seriously and my relationship with God was really important to me. But now I had new questions about who God is and how God um, operates in the world. And it wasn't long after that, that I um, met a Cistercian monk named Thomas Keating. And he introduced me to the contemplative tradition and a practice called centering prayer. And mind you, this was, um, this was after a season of not being able to pray, no longer going to church. I mean, what did the pastor in Omaha, Nebraska have to say to the reality that I was aware of, you know? And, uh, and yeah, I was really struggling. And so when, when Thomas introduced me to the practice of centering prayer, it changed my life. Like I just took to it like a bee to honey because now I found a way to sit in silence, um, cultivating really this interior solitude and stillness and stay connected to God in the midst of my questions, my doubts, my turmoil, really. There's, there's also like this little line that I read on your website. Contemplative spirituality is crucial to authentic, creative, liberating social change, mm. which I think is kind of an interesting phrase, just especially having mm. heard what your, a little bit of your story, just a, mm. just a bit of your story, um, because it seems like you, you were doing and engaged with that um, social action work, right? Um, and uh, you're, you're kind of going the other direction on this quote, right? You did that work and then went, whoa, like, what do I do with my faith? What do I do with God? Um, and then it seems like you found your way into contemplative spirituality as, as a bit of an answer to those questions. Yes. Um, so now, uh, are you finding that that is something then that contemplative spirituality is also something that's fueling further engagement with the world? Is that, mm, mm, yeah. Fair? Yeah. Um, hopefully you edit a little bit. Do you edit your podcast? Uh, well, I can now, yeah. <laughs> because I have a puppy and he needs oh. to, you don't have to edit this portion if you don't want to, but I need to let my puppy out of my office. Hold on just a second. Okay. Yeah. Uh, okay. Sorry for that interruption. Actually, we should leave that in because, you know, yeah. um, this is actually a, like, it's, it, to me, it's a good illustration. Like it's spirituality for ordinary people. And mm. so... Yeah. (laughs) Here you go. go. You're, you're like, okay, let's talk about the depths of human despair. (laughs) Oh, but I got to let my puppy out. Yeah, exactly. What this is about. That's right. That's right. This is it. This is it. Yeah. Um, yeah, my puppy is a gift. Oh my gosh. Faithful's two, two and a half years old and he, he's changed our life. Uh, but maybe we can talk about that later. <laughs> um, back to your question. Um, yeah, it's really interesting. As I gave myself to contemplative practice, um, I began to wake up. And um, people may be familiar with that phrase. And, and I want to be clear. What that means is that I was beginning to see um, 
my unconscious motivation. So what was um, before rather unconscious in terms of the way that I was living and interacting with the world, now I was waking up to that, that unconscious stuff was coming into consciousness. Things like um, I was really attached to other, what other people thought about me, um, seeking their approval and affirmation. And I wasn't aware of that, but um, looking back, I can see how a lot of my decisions um, were linked to that. And so that indicates, you know, a person who is not free. And in our Christian tradition, um, we, we see, especially in Jesus's teachings, um, how there's a lot of emphasis on seeing um, I really clearly in all of the healings that Jesus would do for people who were blind. Um, but if we study the scriptures in any serious way, we, we, we come to realize that um, the faith is as much about seeing as it is about knowing. And in fact, um, the faith is also about unknowing, which I write about in my book, um, which sometimes we don't, that doesn't get um, translated to us in, in church experience. So, at any rate, this this um, this journey of seeing, this experience of waking up to unconscious motivations began to reveal that many of us in social justice work take better care of others than we take care of ourselves. We tend to be some of the most grumpy people, um, and we often um, lose sight of of our faith in the work, um, working so hard to make a difference, and. Um, and what I came to realize was that if more and more of us could wake up to those unconscious motivations that are driving us um, and let, the, let our motivations be more purified and come into a greater alignment with um, the actual presence and will of God in our life, then um, the more effective we will be in whatever sphere of influence we find ourselves in. And so... I mean, sadly, it's, you know, we end up causing, even in the best intentions, sometimes we cause more harm than good. And that's what I was seeing in the social justice sector um, with, you know, many of us who were trying so hard to right the world. Um, we're actually doing some relational damage along the way, um, some exploitation of our own. Um, and not, you know, then to mention like, you know, families that were breaking down, marriages that were breaking down, um, those kinds of ramifications from a from a soul that is um, struggling to really live into uh, their truest self. Hmm. So then, what like what do you do with that? So if you uncover something like you're saying, you uncovered something about yourself, or you saw that um, you know you, you were you were very concerned, you know unconsciously concerned about what other people thought, thought about you, then what happens after that? Like, is there mm-hmm. like just seeing it, is that enough or is mm-hmm. there? Mm-hmm. Well, <laughs> that's when, that's when things really get interesting. Yeah. <laughs> so the truth will set you free, but first it will make you miserable. Right. Right. Okay. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and once we wake up, there's no turning back. Yeah. And so then the whole order of one's life, begins to shift. So in my case, you know, how I was relating to the people closest to me in my life began to, those relationships began to shift, um, and change. So, you know, my husband, my board of directors, um, various friends in my life, um, all of our donors, like, 
by, by choosing, once I could see, um, I could choose truth. I could choose to align myself with what it was I was being called to regardless of what other people thought about me and whether or not I got their approval. And so that meant quite a bit of disruption actually. Um, and my, I write about that more in detail in my first book. So okay. if people want to check out Pilgrimage of a Soul. Yeah, yeah. Pilgrimage okay. of a Soul, Contemplative Spirituality for the Active Life. Yeah. It's a theological narrative or spiritual memoir that really details how this um, took effect in my life, how this spirituality took effect and kind of was the um, undoing of my false self, if you will. Okay. Um, there, there's like way too much here to be able to talk about in the in a short interview this is why people should go and just read your books like that's i say that on this podcast like almost every episode of, yeah of um but uh i, I kind of want to come back to this idea of uh social action and spirituality and the link between them um mm. because i don't think everybody necessarily realizes that there is that that there or maybe ought to be a strong connection between those things um and i think when at least when I've gone and started to explore um, people who are contemplative uh, or contemplatives, I guess they, they are socially engaged. They're among some of the most socially engaged. Um, But I'm not sure everybody realizes that. Like, what is that? Why is that connection so important? Mm. Well, the connection is crucial because it speaks, I think, you know, to the incarnation, to um, the essence of the Christian faith, which is that God dwells among us, and um, and there's not a separation between divinity and and humanity. And so, to be um, more and more aware of and connected to God necessarily implies um, a connection to others. Mm-hmm. There's just no separation. So. Um, I, there's now we've inherited this idea of a separation between contemplation and action historically within the church, because, um, there was a time when it, to be a contemplative meant to, um, take vows and to be committed to the cloistered life in like monastic life. Um, and to be a, a person of action, um, or, or, or to choose the active life meant then you choose like to be clergy, um, the priesthood or something like that. And you're directly involved with people. Then that leaves not very much for everybody else. Like all the other lay people, no, don't, they don't get a vocation, you know, <laughs> their vocation is to family or whatever. But um, Thomas Aquinas actually said um, that there is a third option and it's the mixed life. And it's this mixed life of the integration of contemplation with action that I do really think um, we are collectively living into that possibility uh, now more than ever before. Mm. I think too, even the cloistered life in um, in those in those kind of polar choices, the cloistered life actually ends up being a life in service to others. It's just within a close knit community. That's um, right. And perhaps that might even when we compare that to say a North American version of Christianity that we see all the time, that actually might be closer to an activist role than, than we see in a lot of people's lives mm. where we're living pretty isolated lives, even though we are in the world. 
Yes. Um, we're not really doing much serving of others. So I, that, that polarity might not even, like, I wonder if that's really a true Christian polarity or if it's sort of an imposition of what we think spirituality is, that it's this thing of the spirit that isn't connected to the body, that isn't really, yes. that's an escape from the world. Yes. Whether it's from this idea of um, Christianity is really just about believing Jesus. So you go to heaven when you die. And that's what spirituality is about is getting to heaven. Yeah. Um, but that's not really a, like that to me, that is not really a core historic Christian. Uh, uh, I, don't, I don't want to say belief, but it's not really what Christianity is core is about. Like Jesus didn't mm-hmm. come and say, here's what you need to do to get to heaven. Right. Um, right. Right. It's unfortunate that we have um, intellectualized the faith so much, made it something that we ascend to in terms of our belief system, divorced from what difference does that make in my life and the world around me. And it seems to me that Jesus, to me, he lived spirituality, meaning that he, he lived the integration of his identity with how he lived. And I think maybe that's what we're missing because it's about tends to be more the faith or the religion tends to be more about our beliefs where that totally misses even like our identity. We don't really know who we are. We know what we believe, but who the hell are we? (laughs) You know? (laughs) Uh, Yeah. Um, I, and I think I hear you saying as well that um, contemplative spirituality is kind of about these practices that they're, they're tools in order to be able to essentially spend time with God and then that might wake us up, but that's also going to automatically connect us to other human beings. Cause that's what God is about. Like yeah. that's what God's doing. So uh, I really, I really love that. Um, can I ask you said something about uh, faith can sometimes be about unknowing. Mm, yeah. Can you explain that to me <laughs> Yeah, yeah. as a pastor that has to preach sermons. Yeah. Well, you have to read the chapter because I won't okay. be able to do it justice yeah. in a few minutes here, but uh, I can, let me just speak to it from some personal experience. So after that crisis of faith, I, uh, I went on sabbatical for about five months and I was, um, I was, I spent some time on campus at Duke Divinity School and I can just remember so vividly it was in the fall and I was living in this little cottage called the Rose Cottage and everything about it was just um, really palpable in terms of that time in my life, that season, the, the changing of the leaves, the changing of the climate, the cool, crisp air, all of it. Um, I'm just kind of going back there here at in this moment. So at any rate, I was, you know, having this crisis of faith, I'm going into this to pretty extreme solitude, silence and stillness in terms of like having completely detached from my professional life. And, uh, and I had this sense that God wanted to reintroduce God's self to me. And, uh, and this was requiring an extraordinary amount of trust and faith because I knew up to that point, I knew all this stuff about God, but I was lacking in terms of how much I really knew God in my personhood, in my lived experience. And so that's why there was such a crisis in the face of suffering, because I was, um, what I knew in my head wasn't enough to help me hold and navigate 
uh, some of the most difficult experiences of a, of a human, of a human life, you know? And so this is um, where the unknowing begins to come in, in terms of like unknowing what I thought I knew, realizing there's a whole lot more that I don't know about myself, about others, about ultimate reality. And, um, and the, the, the humbling experience of that to become like, now you're a pastor, wasn't it? Um, when Jesus was reinstating Peter, that he said, when you grow old, you'll go where you don't want to go. Somebody else will dress you. Isn't that yep. the conversation? Yeah, you'll stretch out your hands. Yeah. that I always come back to that when I'm thinking about the unknowing process of, um, of like this complete vulnerable willingness to be led by God. And, um, and that kind of trust is scary to most of us because to be quite honest, we're really afraid of God. We're, we don't really think God's got our back or that God's got our best interest at heart. You know, we just got it. We kind of have inherited this Greek mm-hmm. Zeus God that's, you know, that we got to keep happy or else we might suffer, you know, his, his vengeance or something. Of course, and it is a he, you know, because he's got like white hair and it's long and he's, you know, and he's white. We've seen the pictures. God is white. So we have to be, we just have to wake up to all of these um, illusions, right? Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's really good. Um, So you talk about, or I guess actually this is in your book description, spiritual practices that used to sustain us fall short when life circumstances bring us to the limits of ourself, which I think actually sounds like this is what you experienced, right? Mm -hmm. Um, But what are some of those practices? Like I know you said you grew up in the church and you were committed to prayer. So what, what's the difference between the faith that you had Mm-hmm. And, and why was that not, Enough. why was that not su- sufficient? I guess. Yeah. Is what I'm yeah. Why, why did those things fall short? And I think, cause I think a lot of people actually find that when they're in crisis, it might not be to the extent that you yeah. that have experienced, but it might be, you know, a spouse passes away or someone it, it yeah. struggles with cancer for three years and is in pain at the end of their life. It's not yeah. even, um, those kinds of things happen. And there are many people that do not have even many Christians who feel like they do not have resources to, to cope. Right. Right. This, I'm so glad you're, you're bringing this to the forefront because that's what I uh, kind of intuitively hope my readers and, and various ones will get from my story. Yeah. Like my story is kind of extreme, but I hope that it, it resonates with people that like, yeah, like we have our own struggles and our reality, you know, and our experiences and stuff. So, um, yeah. So what was different? Like, I, you know, I, I'm, that's interesting. I, I, I'm grateful for the Christian formation I received. Um, but looking back, if it had been integrated with more of the contemplative tradition I would have been better served. And I think this great divorce in the faith that we can really look back historically to the 
even at the great schism um, in what was that 1013, where the Eastern Church and the Western Church split and and we lost a lot of the contemplative dimension of the faith. And then the Enlightenment period like really elevated the rational mind. And so we've inherited a very intellectual, rationalized faith where many of us we know the scriptures, we we know certain things about God. We know about the life of Jesus, but we have not been formed in how to um, really embody uh, the, the life of Christ. Um, scriptures say that we are to take on the mind of Jesus, that we are to be transformed into the image and likeness of Jesus, um, that we have this divine nature that, um, I mean, this becomes theological, you know, differences in terms of how we understand um our our nature is it original goodness or original sin but the the truth is that we are children of god so we have divine dna and so this 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 um understanding of our identity uh hasn't been um perhaps we we haven't known how to like realize that to live into that we may have it up here but it's not taken effect very much in a lot of our lives and in our relationships and such. So the prayer and the way of relating to God that I grew up with was just really heavy on the intellectual, rational part of the faith. And contemplative spirituality then um, has a way of translating all of that into one's lived experience. So how does this change me really like not just in what I believe but like in how I relate to my husband in a way that is reflective of the divine image in me you know like how do I um interact with um systems of patriarchy for example I mean these are some of the things that I've had to deal with you know so like how does that matter like how does the faith um really lead to transformation of, of, of a person so that we're more liberated, so that we have this um, capacity and ability to walk more faithfully with God in a way that's like really life-giving and um, where we're in the flow that in terms of what the Spirit of God is doing in our life and in the world around us. So it's hard to kind of put it, you know, succinctly, but I hope yeah. it's coming through in terms of some of the differences. Yeah, I think... One of the things that I think about is um, there are there are folks within the Christian church who are really concerned about social justice. And sometimes it kind of comes across as we're interested in social justice and all of that personal relationship with Jesus stuff, we're suspicious of that. Mm. And then it'll also work the other way. Those who will talk about you need to have a personal relationship with Jesus. That's what it's all about. All that like, yeah, we should be charitable to people, but social justice, uh, we don't want to use that language. But what I find with contemplatives and yourself included, you seem to be saying, actually, these things belong together. And we just have kind of limited views of what each of those things are, right? Mm-hmm. So what is a personal relationship with Jesus? How? What are the tools that actually cultivate that, that lead to not just personal transformation, but potentially the transformation of communities and families and every, everyone we encounter. Yes. Um, 
And so that, and that's what social justice is about. Yes. Uh, so it, it's interesting because you're talking about a personal spirituality. You're talking about a personal relationship with mm-hmm. Jesus, with God, mm-hmm. but it's, it's through a, a very different lens that a huge sections of the church is not used to hearing mm-hmm. about. Yeah. And I love that you use the word lens because again, this has all been about seeing, <laughs> about waking up, about it is, um, it is a shift in awareness and consciousness um, paying attention. You know, one of the parables of Jesus is about um, the virgins that are to keep their oil lamps lit. And there's something about, you know, keeping watch, waiting for the master to come home, right? And, um, and then I think about Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane before his crucifixion, you know, just asking his disciples to stay up and pray and keep watch. And there are these themes around keeping watch, paying attention, seeing um, what's happening, what's going on so that, so that we might choose out of our highest, truest self that is aligned with, with Jesus um, rather than our programs for happiness, which are really centered around security and survival, power and control and affection and esteem. And we are asleep to the fact that we are driven by those um, rather than by the spirit of God within us for any given situation. Okay. But now also, because you bring up uh, happiness, can I ask you about joy? Because you said something way back earlier in our interview mm-hmm. about, um, there was something about like, people can be cranky when <laughs> in, uh, in social action, social change. Um, and now, but I kind of see that there is sort of this pursuit of, I want to be happy. I want to have a happy life. So Mm. Um, yeah I think people are searching for that in in kind of the wrong places obviously but Mm. yeah so happiness is an interesting thing Uh, I think a lot of us approach happiness um, externally so um, our happiness is dependent on circumstance Uh, if I can just get this job or this spouse or if I can just get this I mean whether it's pregnancy or a child or it's um, whatever it is, like we look outside of ourselves. If my husband will just be like this, or my wife will just be like this, or we we're looking for happiness by everything in our life being orchestrated in a certain way. Joy comes when we develop this capacity to really be with what is as it is and find this freedom to live into our best self in the midst of these circumstances. So that means even in the midst of suffering, we can have joy. Um, We may not, you know, the disease might not go away. Like the cancer might not get beat by chemo. Um, I may not be happy about that, but a joy can come in, um, in like, because of these circumstances, I get to tap into more and more of who I really am and offer that best version of myself to the world around me and my relationships. I love that you're saying this and it's the, and you're the person who's saying this um, because of what you've seen and what you've been through in your life. Um, like I think, I think your story and your background, like to me, God is using you mm. to, to, to get this kind of message out. Mm. Um, 
because your your background and what you've been through and what you've seen lends credibility to this, right? Because mm-hmm. um, it can be hard to believe people when we hear things like mm-hmm. about inner joy, for instance. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I think that's really an important uh, an important piece of what you're saying. Mm-hmm. Um, can we talk really briefly? We're just scratching the surface and we're almost done uh, for today. But uh, can we talk really briefly just about what are when we're talking about contemplative practice, uh, what are some of those things? Um, I've talked about mm-hmm. a few of them on the podcast before, so we don't need to mm-hmm. go into detail, but just yeah. say what those things are, what you engage in, how you go about um, your own practice of spirituality. Yeah, yeah, that's great. So in in each of the chapters of my, my forthcoming book, uh, I... The, the good thing about, let me just say this in, in, in preface to the answering your question. So each of the chapters will introduce the reader to a theme in the contemplative um, tradition or in contemplative spirituality, things like withdrawing to engage, finding liberation by discernment, discovering darkness as light, unknowing to know, uh, dying for life. And, um, and so then um, in a vulnerable way, I, I invite the reader into that theme, help them understand how that looks in one's life. I introduce them then in each chapter to a a teacher in the Christian tradition that really helps us understand this aspect of the spiritual journey. And then I close the chapter with a spiritual practice. So um, if readers want to get more serious about all of this, the the book will be um, really helpful to support someone as they're finding their way into contemplative spirituality. And so some of the traditional practices are things like Lexio Divina, um, which is sacred reading. It's a different way of reading scripture. It's like letting the scriptures pray us rather than we praying the scriptures. Um, then there's uh, the breath prayer. There's um, centering prayer. There's the labyrinth. Um, there are any number of, of these practices that give us some kind of way to, um, and to, to remember it is practice. It's so different from the other ways that we've known how to pray. This is, um, more of a practice than it may, than it may feel like prayer. It feels more like a, something that we're practicing. Um, and it's in the practice, it's like we're practicing interior solitude, silence, and stillness so that in our active life, um, the fruit comes. So by taking time to practice showing up and being present to God, we become more discerning to God's presence in our daily life when there's a lot of interference and and noise that makes it hard to hear. Um, So those practices are um, really helpful. Now in my own life, um, centering prayer is, is my water. It's the air that I breathe. I'm really committed to that practice on a daily basis and uh, and then I, at times I'll I'll do Lexio Divina as well, and then um, I borrow a tradition from India, uh, a practice from India called yoga. So um, I know some Christians have had a problem with um, practicing yoga because it comes from another um, tradition, but I have found that it um, has made me a better Christian and is really really helpful. There's no other embodiment practice that I pray with my whole body that, um, that serves 
me in that way. There's, there's nothing in Christianity like it, you know, that I've really found. And so, um, that's a regular practice for me as well. Okay. That's, that's really awesome. Mm -hmm. Um, we're probably, we're going to have to leave it there. Um, Mm -hmm. but thank you so much. This has been really an amazing conversation. Mm -hmm. Um, so I'd love talking to you today. Thank Um, you. We've, we've mentioned the book several times. Um, but if people want to connect with you and know more about what you do, where should they, where can they go online to do that? Yeah. Yeah. So I'm at, on Twitter at Felina. Um, I'm not that active on Twitter, but I, I try to do my part. I'm also on Instagram and Facebook. I'm pretty easy to find with my name, P-H-I-L-E-E-N-A. And then, um, you know, I wanted to mention for the listeners to go to gravitycenter.com, which is the, the center that I run with my husband and on that website, there's a pull-down menu of practices that people can go to and learn more about contemplative practice. There's resources there. There's instructions and all of that. So that could be really helpful. And then I have yeah. a website too, which is just felina.com. Yeah, super easy to find. Um, mm-hmm. And I'll put some links in our uh, show notes to those as well. So thank you. There. All right. Thanks so much for this. Yeah, time. for sure. It's nice to meet you, Matt. Thanks for listening today. I hope you found this one helpful. And if you are continuing to find these podcasts, uh, something that you listen to regularly and want to keep on listening to, um, I would love it if you were able to leave a review on iTunes so that other listeners can find this podcast. Um, And feel free to recommend the podcast to your friends. You can also reach out to me if you've got feedback to give to me directly or If you would like to just uh, let me know what you think or ask a question, I'm always available. So you can feel free to send me an email at matt at mattbruff.com, M-A-T-T-B-R-O-U-G-H.com. And uh, I'm also fairly active on Instagram these days. There's an Instagram for this show, Spirituality for Ordinary People. If you just search for that on Instagram, you'll find it. Uh, or just my uh, personal profile, uh, Matt or Matthew Bruff. Uh, would love to hear from you. Thanks for listening. Take care.